Please keep your hymn books open as we'll be uh, turning to page 908 in the back. And then we'll open God's Word to Ephesians 2 and then to Colossians chapter 2. Page 908, Article 10. Conversion as the work of God. The fact that others who are called to the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose his own in Christ, so within time he effectively calls them grants them faith and repentance, and, having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. Article 11. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. Article 12, and this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures which God works in us without our help. But this certainly does not happen only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a way of working that after God has done his work, it remains in man's power whether or not to be reborn or converted. Rather, it is an entirely supernatural work, one that is at the same time most powerful and most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work, which is not lesser than or inferior in power to that of creation or of raising the dead, as Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. As a result, all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are certainly unfailingly and effectively reborn and do actually believe. And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God is also itself active. For this reason, man himself, by that grace which he has received, is also rightly said to believe and to 
Repent, Article 13. In this life, believers cannot fully understand the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with the heart and love their Savior. Let's open the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then turn to Colossians 2. Ephesians 2, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now please turn to Colossians 2 for our text and verses 13 and 14. I encourage you to keep it open there at verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 2. And you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So far, the reading of God's holy word. What would you say is one of the most frequently used words in Christian circles? Isn't it the word grace? We hear it in public prayers, we hear it in sermons, we also hear it in Christian conversation. Every Lord's Day we find that word in our psalms and hymns. In our pre-service song this afternoon we sang, By grace I am an heir of heaven. By grace, a crown of life is mine. By grace alone, I shall inherit. By grace, these precious words remember. By grace, be this in death my comfort. I am saved by grace, by grace. In our opening hymn, we sang of the pardoning grace that saves me. 
Before our scripture reading, we sang from Psalm 116, How shall my soul by grace restored give worthy thanks, O Lord, to thee? Let all his saints his grace declare and join to sound his praise abroad. Perhaps you didn't notice it. I hope you did, but perhaps you didn't notice in those opening songs alone, you used the word grace several times. You see, grace is one of those key words in Christianity. The opening greeting of each of Paul's 13 letters contain the word grace. At the beginning of Colossians, verse 2, we find the words grace to you and peace. And in every one of his letters, you will find that word in his greeting. And when you look at the end of Paul's letters, you find it again, grace be with you. And that is not only so with respect to the epistles of Paul, but also for many of the other New Testament epistles. The last book of the Bible contains the greeting, grace to you and peace. And it closes with these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. The last verse of the last book of the Bible closes with grace. Congregation, every person who confesses to be a Christian will acknowledge that to be right with God, we need His grace. We cannot be accepted by the Lord without it. But even though we frequently use the word grace, how much do we really understand about our indebtedness to grace? We sing, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. But do we really fathom what we're singing? Do we grasp just how indebted we are? Do we truly appreciate what is contained in that five-letter word? This afternoon, we want to consider Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, focusing on grace which raises the dead. First, the need of grace. Second, the power of grace. And third, the assurance provided by grace. In Colossians 2.13, the apostle clearly reminds us of our need. He tells us what we're like in our natural condition. And it's not flattering. He explains to us how horrible our natural state really is. We've already seen this in previous messages on the canons of Dort. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Apart from grace, what are you? Spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead is to be completely unable to positively respond to the things of God. It's to be in bondage to sin to such a degree that you cannot rightly respond to the word. Dead is a very strong word. It was deliberately used by the Holy Spirit so that we may know what the human race is before God. Most people will agree that we're not perfect. We're not quite what we ought to be. We have some flaws and imperfections. But dead? Oh, no, certainly not. I can't accept that. 
Yet that is how the Lord describes us. God's evaluation of mankind in Adam, our representative head, His evaluation of us is that we are dead. Whether we're old or young, rich or poor, male or female, black or white, brilliant or simple, we are all by nature spiritually dead. Our hands are not able to do God's work. Our feet are not able to walk in God's ways. Our tongue is not able to rightly proclaim His praises. Our ears are not able to hear the voice of God. Our eyes are blind to the majesty of Christ. Our minds are not able to receive spiritual things, and our emotions are contrary to the will of God. We put first things last and last things first. We have wrong priorities. We use our talents to serve ourselves. We do not rightly understand sin or the gospel. We replace the spiritual glories of the Creator with the physical glories of the creation. We fail to see that behind every powerful physical thing stands the God of glorious power. We fail to understand, as one writer said, that behind every moment of physical beauty is the God of awesome beauty. Beneath every physical wonder is the God of awesome wonder. Above every moment of love, there is a God who is the source and definition of all true love. We deify our physical bodies, physical pleasure, material possessions, the security of a place, the love of a physical person, and so on, while at the same time failing to understand and desire the spiritual glories of intimate communion with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Great Creator. An English writer of the 1800s said of our spiritual deadness, I quote, This is the true explanation of sin not felt, and sermons not believed, and good advice not followed, and the gospel not embraced, and the world not forsaken, and the cross not taken up, and self-will not mortified, and evil habits not laid aside, and the Bible seldom read, and the knees never bent in prayer. Why is all this on every side? The answer is simple. Men are dead. Brothers and sisters, why is it that people can hear the proclamation of the gospel, the greatest message in the world, a message of freedom and joy, and say, well, that's nice for you, but I don't need it. If it makes you happy, that's fine. Go ahead, but I don't want it. You go ahead and sit in a bench on Sunday if that tickles your fancy. I'd rather be out in my boat. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be sleeping in on Sunday morning. I'd rather be doing yard work, gardening, or touring on my gold wing. I'd rather be on Instagram or Twitter. Why is it that people can hear of Christ condemned, cursed, and crucified as our substitute and simply, oh, yawn, and shrug it off? Why is it that people can hear of the eternal inheritance of the redeemed and merely walk away unaffected? 
Why is that people can make sport of the terrors of hell where there is nothing but everlasting suffering? Why is that people can mock the Holy Scriptures which guide us through life, comfort us in death, and lead us to the eternal pleasures at God's right hand? Why? Because people are dead in trespasses, morally and spiritually dead. Verse 13 of Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul goes on to speak of what? The uncircumcision of your flesh or the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. What did he mean by that? Uncircumcision. The Colossian church was made up primarily of Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were not part of the covenant people of God, not marked with the sign of God's covenant in circumcision. They were uncircumcised and considered unclean. Uncircumcised and unclean are synonymous. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul said that in the Old Testament era, the uncircumcised were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The uncircumcised, in other words, were lost. Lost. To say in verse 13 that the Colossians used to be uncircumcised is to say that they were unclean, not able to have a relationship with God. They had not only been uncircumcised in the flesh, but they had also been uncircumcised in heart. Therefore, they could have no fellowship with the Lord. The picture that we have of humanity in the beginning of verse 13 is extremely bleak. We're like Lazarus in the grave, dead and unable to respond to anyone. We're uncircumcised in heart and therefore unclean before God and worthy to be banished forever. We cannot hear the gospel. We cannot give ourselves life. We cannot rise from the grave. We cannot do anything that is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. In our natural state, there is a massive, massive chasm between us and God. An enormous gulf that we can never bridge. So, where do we go from here? If we're naturally alienated from God, unclean, not able to do anything that pleases Him, what hope do we have? Are we all condemned forever? If we cannot hear the gospel, if we cannot respond rightly to spiritual things, if every man, woman, and child since Adam is going, going to perish in sin, damned eternally, That would certainly be our destiny, were it not for the grace of God. Those who are dead, uncircumcised in heart, need His grace. The only way to be rescued is by undeserved favor. Which brings us, secondly, from the need of grace to the power of grace. The power of grace. Let's look once again to verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, uncircumcision of your sinful nature, he, 
God has made alive together with Him Christ. God, by His grace, has the power to make spiritually dead sinners alive and to circumcise the uncircumcised. Brothers and sisters, those who are spiritually dead don't need some minor adjustments or slight alterations. They don't need a little makeup or some minor external changes. What they need is an entirely new nature. We need to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We need a new heart. We must become a new creature. We must receive new life. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Those who are spiritually dead need much more than a mere turning over a new leaf. They need nothing less than a new birth. A resurrection of human nature. They need to be granted new life. That is a sovereign work of grace. Spiritually dead people cannot make themselves alive. Only God, by the power of His Spirit, can make the dead rise. He alone can quicken a person who is spiritually dead. A corpse cannot revive itself or even assist in the effort. Regeneration or new birth is not the result of anything man does or says. It's not the result of faith. It's not the result of believing in Christ. Regeneration or new birth is a sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. Man has no part in it whatsoever. Just as Lazarus had no part in his resurrection from the grave, he could not even assist in bringing about his resurrection. So those who are spiritually dead have no part in their spiritual resurrection. Regeneration is of God alone. The sinner is completely passive. Article 12 of the canon says, And this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead, and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the Scriptures which God works in us without our help. Article 12 goes on to say it is an entirely supernatural work. Regeneration is not inferior in power to that of creation or of raising the dead. It is an entirely supernatural work. It is an entirely supernatural work. What happens is this. When the gospel of salvation is proclaimed, it invites all people without distinction to drink of the water of life and live. As the gospel is preached, it promises salvation to all who repent and believe. The gospel call goes out to everyone. But we know that when the word is preached, not everyone responds appropriately. There are some who hear the message and walk away saying, Who needs this rubbish? 
It's all hogwash, bunk, bunk. They are not convicted of sin or their need of Christ. Based on Scripture, Reformed theologians therefore make a distinction between the outward call and the inward call. The outward general call is extended to the elect and the non-elect alike. It is the proclamation of redemption to all who will listen. But this outward call does not of itself bring sinners to Jesus Christ or change the condition of the human heart. For the outward call to be effective, it must be accompanied by the inward call of God's Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit calls someone by His grace, that call is irresistible. It always brings that person to new life. It is so powerful, it cannot be frustrated. Keep your finger in at Colossians 2, please, and turn with me to Acts 16. Acts 16. We find a helpful illustration of this outward and inward call in Acts 16. This is where Paul and company on his second missionary journey came to the city of Philippi. He had been divinely summoned there to bring the word. We read in verse 13 that on the Sabbath day they went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and they sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now look to verse 14. Verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What we have here is the outward call, the preaching of the word through the apostle Paul. Everyone gathered at the riverside received that outward call, right? But Lydia not only received the outward call from the mouth of the apostle, she also received the inward call of irresistible or effectual grace. You see that there? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia did not heed the word because she was more perceptive or more sincere than the other women. The fact that she received Paul's message had nothing to do with her intelligence or her sincerity. What does verse 14 say? The Lord opened her heart. She was brought from death to life by the power of sovereign, irresistible grace. Grace which raises the dead. Article 11 of the Canons, third and fourth head, says that when God works in the elect true conversion, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly, and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating Spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good 
dates. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we see in the conversion of Lydia? She not only had the gospel preached to her, the outward call, but she also had the Spirit powerfully at work in her, applying the gospel. The Holy Spirit enlightened her mind so that she could rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. God penetrated into her inmost being, opened her closed heart, softened her hard heart, and circumcised her uncircumcised heart. Her will, which had been dead and lifeless to the things of God, was made alive and became receptive to the gospel's call. The Spirit of God effectively enabled her to turn willingly to God in repentance and faith. Congregation, the wonder of regeneration is in the fact that it is exclusively the Spirit's work. Just as Lydia did not choose to give herself natural birth, so she did not choose to give herself spiritual birth. As her natural birth depended on the decision of the Lord, so her spiritual birth depended on the decision of God, the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit is able to grant the new birth that is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And that was not only so for Lydia, but it's also the case for each and every one of you. If you're a child of God today, it's not because you chose to give yourself spiritual birth to be regenerated, born again. It's not because you properly exercised your free will, as some would assert. No, it is because the Holy Spirit has penetrated into your inmost being. He opened your closed heart, softened your hard heart, and circumcised your uncircumcised heart. Your will, which had been dead and lifeless to the things of God, was made alive and became receptive to the gospel's call. Regeneration is not man's doing or man's decision. It is the result of the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, those who are born again have no one to praise but the Lord. If you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, you have no one to thank but the Lord. I like the illustration I once read. It reminds us of the fact that we are rescued from our sin. When we are rescued from our sin, all the praise belongs to God. The illustration goes like this. Suppose you know of five men who are about to rob a bank. You try to convince them not to commit the crime, but these men, evil-natured as they are, run for their car. You tackle one of, one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others drive off to the bank. In the process, a guard is shot, and the four men are sentenced to the electric chair. Can the one man whom you tackled say, I didn't go to the electric chair because I'm better than others? Of course not. He was spared because you tackled him, not because his heart wasn't in the robbery. And so those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. 
Lydia, whose heart was opened by the Lord, had no one to praise but Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, whose heart was opened by the Lord, had no one to praise but Jesus Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, if your heart has been opened, you have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Congregation of the Arminian understanding of regeneration is very different from the Reformed understanding. Arminian theology asserts that you're born again because you believe in Christ. Faith is a necessary prerequisite for regeneration. Faith precedes regeneration for the Arminian. Reformed theology asserts the opposite. You're not born again because you believe. No, you believe in Christ because you are born again. Faith is not a necessary prerequisite for regeneration. No, faith is the necessary result of regeneration. Faith does not precede regeneration. Regeneration precedes faith. Reformed theology declares that the work of regeneration is accomplished by God and by God alone. Therefore, we have no one to praise but Him. We cannot and will not respond to the preaching of the Word in a positive way unless we first receive the grace of regeneration. God must make us alive before there can be any positive response of faith. We are completely dependent on the power of grace, grace which raises the dead, irresistible, effectual, unconquerable grace. Those whom the Father has chosen from eternity and for whom Christ died, the Holy Spirit will bring to life. Colossians 2.13 And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sinful nature, He has made alive together with Him, with Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we've seen something of the need of grace and the power of grace. Now, thirdly and finally, consider the assurance that grace provides. The assurance that grace provides. Look again with me to verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sinful nature... He is made alive together with him, with Christ. Now notice the next lines. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Those who are made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit can be assured that all their trespasses are forgiven. Whatever they may have said, thought, or done in their state of spiritual deadness is completely pardoned. Isn't that the joy of the Christian? The psalmist said in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. 
In Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The prophet Micah said, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Those who are made alive with Christ can be fully assured of God's complete pardon. In Colossians 3, 5, the Apostle Paul mentions that the Colossian Christians had walked in fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But through the Spirit who makes alive, they were assured that all their evil ways were forgiven. Congregation, are you guilty of fornication? uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry? Are you a transgressor in the sight of God? The Lord says, if you are made alive in Christ, then it's all, all forgiven. You can come to worship on the Lord's day, and you can come to the table of the Lord, mindful of the words of Jesus, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness of sins. And then notice what Paul said in verse 14 of our text. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, stood opposed to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, what's that talking about? What is Paul saying here? What does he mean by the handwriting of requirements that was against us? Commentators believe that Paul is referring to a certificate of indebtedness which was handwritten by the debtor in acknowledgement of his debt. So, if Tom owed John money or merchandise, he would write it down, and that document would be the certificate of indebtedness. In verse 14, Paul says that this certificate contains handwriting of requirements against us. The ESV says, the record of debt that stood against us. The record of debt that stood against us. It contains the demands of the law which we owe to the Lord. Because we have broken the law, we owe God a massive, staggering debt. The debt that we owe Him is enough to condemn us to hell for eternity. Scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, to do them. Dear friends, the certificate of debt that you owe Him is enough to bring upon you God's curse forever. Your certificate of debt would destroy you eternally. But the apostle says that those who are raised from the dead and made alive with Christ have all the debts wiped out, canceled. Imagine owing someone $10 million. Your certificate of indebtedness clearly says, I owe John $10 million. But John takes that certificate out of your hand and erases the debt completely so that your obligation is canceled. 
Congregation, the Lord graciously does that for His people. He erases, cancels, not $10 million, but your debt of sin that would condemn you forever. Like wiping off a blackboard, the Lord wipes out the handwriting of requirements, the record of debt that was against us. For those who are made alive with Christ, God has wiped out our certificate of debt. Verse 14 says, He's canceled it. He's taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Not a trace of it remains to be held against us. As the hymn writer said, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That is the assurance provided by grace. The debt is canceled, wiped out, erased, never to be brought up again. Jesus himself paid the debt at the cross. The curse of the law that you and I deserve because of the massive debt of sin was placed upon him. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took upon himself the punishment that your certificate of debt required. And now in him, you're completely pardoned pardoned. All your trespasses are blotted out from His sight. Dear friends, if you've been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've been regenerated by irresistible grace, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, then your certificate of debt is blank, wiped out. Christ has paid it for you. Every night before you lay down on your bed, you can praise God that Jesus paid it all. All your failures of that day, all your transgressions, all your misspoken words, all your evil thoughts, all your duties left undone, all the sinful struggles in your home, Jesus paid it all. You are alive by His power and grace. You are forgiven and accepted by the Lord and righteous in Him. So if there's anyone here today who's not right with God, I urge you to heed the message of the gospel. Repent of your sin and rebellious spirit. Repent of your closed, hard, and uncircumcised heart and flee to Christ who alone has the power to wipe out your debt. Turn to Him so that you may rest assured concerning yourself. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. You believe that? Let us pray. Once again, Lord our God, we come to you with nothing to offer. We are broken sinners. You have come to us in your grace. We who by nature are dead 
you have made alive. And we have you to praise, you to thank alone. We have contributed nothing to our regeneration. Thank you, dear God, for that sovereign grace. Help us to meditate upon it. May we not just simply shrug these things off. Lord our God, each one here this afternoon has heard the outward call of the gospel. Now we plead with you that you would call each and every one here inwardly by the work and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, each one has heard with the ears the outward call. We pray that each one would hear with their heart the inward call and that together we can rejoice and praise you for that astonishing grace. May we be able, each and every one, to confess together Jesus paid it all. So receive our praises as we conclude this service. Bless our fellowship together. Lord, we do pray that if there's anyone here still indifferent to these things, that you would give them no rest and no peace. until by the work of your spirit they repent and find life and complete pardon in Jesus Christ. Hear us, Lord. In his precious name we pray, amen.